available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, it wasn't just farmers growing vegetables this year in Canada. According to a study out of Dalhousie University, the pandemic inspired a lot of people to grow their own gardens. Vanessa Young with the Horticulture and Agriculture Lifelong Learning Programs with the University of Saskatchewan says there definitely was an increased interest in gardening. Part of it, she believes, is to provide food for the family, but it's also a stress reliever. She'll also talk about the different ways you can grow a garden on the prairies. It's always great to connect with producers who are willing to share their stories about their own farming operations. Lonnie and Connie Bulmer run Bison River Ranch in northeast Saskatchewan. And in addition to raising bison, the couple recently added a rental cabin to their property. I'll talk to Lonnie about their farm and how the addition of that cabin has been a pleasant surprise and a welcome addition to their farm. After the break, Vanessa Young. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Vanessa Young is with the University of Saskatchewan's Horticulture Department. Uh, Vanessa, gardening has really taken off during this pandemic. So we're going into our second season now uh, dealing with COVID-19 and gardening has taken on a, a really important role for a lot of people. I think it's really important that um, we give farmers so much credit for all the food they grow and all the immense work they're doing to help feed the population and I know that with uh, COVID there's a, there has been a huge run of people um, really concerned about our food systems and getting local food and food availability and there's also been a tremendous amount of stress on people so I think those are the two driving factors that are pushing people towards gardening not just for um getting food because there we were hearing from a lot of people that are really concerned about that um, but also just for the stress relief of actually being able to focus on something that gives them hope. When we talk about applying knowledge of farmers to growing food I, I guess we also need to keep in mind that we need to realize that gardens are not little fields. So it takes very different approaches to be able to um, grow in a garden rather than growing in a field. And I think it's really important that we keep that in mind because context for growing things and the types of um, ways that you can go about it are very different. So yes, we have a lot of, um, like I am a PA, I'm working on, I'm working on my PA. I still have one more test to write and then I've got my certification. So I, as an agrologist, I do understand what it takes to grow in a field, but I also understand that a lot, not all of these skills are transferable and we treat the soil a little bit differently. So yes, Absolutely, we're going to be talking about how some of these are similar, but I really need to people to understand that taking the whole approach that we take to growing in fields on large scale just doesn't work in a garden situation. I find that that's where a lot of us run into um, problems is when we try to apply field scale solutions and field scale approaches into something that's really not a field scale situation. And it it's a completely different ecosystem and management approach. So what we're doing is we're looking at this more like um, an ecosystem approach or a holistic approach to garden management. Um, some of the things I'm going to be talking to you guys about rather than a more intensive field scale approach. I'm as guilty as anyone. I grew up on a farm um, 
I live on a farm now. I grow a large garden. Uh, growing up, I was in the garden every day, pulling weeds with my mom. So going to no-till really is a major switch in uh, mindset. You know, I love my garden. I hate my weeds, but that's the way I've always done it. Oh, I hear ya. I spend many summers doing child labor pulling weeds. And it is a different mindset. I, and I mean, I, I, I teach farmers all the time about trying to grow vegetables. And they're, I mean, they're, they're amazing. They're brilliant out in a field. But when you start to apply the same approach to a vegetable garden, it just doesn't work as well. And you're actually creating more issues on this scale. And again, it's a scale thing because, um, when we, when we look at the different ways to garden, like, first off, we think we need to start this whole conversation by saying there are so many ways you can be successful as a gardener. And there's, I can probably name 10 different ways that we could grow vegetables and we could be successful. And some of them are very much the approach that traditional people, that people in Saskatchewan traditionally use, which is the black soil, everything's in a row, we're going to cultivate the, to- the, the soil, we're going to spray the weeds, we're going to do all these things, that approach works. And I don't, I don't want to start this conversation saying it doesn't work, it's just there's nine other things that still work. And some of these things work um, not as well, and some of them work much better, um, depending on what your measurements are about what much better looks like. And I think we really need to open the conversation beyond just growing the way that we've always grown things. Things because there are other ways to grow and be very successful. Uh, we still garden like it's 1832, and we don't we don't manage our fields that way anymore. Like we still till very heavily. We still look for the black soil approach. We still plant everything in rows. We still do all of that as a culture here on the prairies. But when you look at how, how well that worked out for us in, on a field scale, we don't do that anymore. Like we're not, we're not leaving black open soil everywhere in the, in the fields. We're direct seeding. We're not, um, we're not expecting to be able to leave black soil on a field and not see that field get full of weeds. Like that's just not the approach we're taking in agriculture anymore. And it's not the approach we need to take in our, in our garden beds anymore either. All right. So help us change our mindset. You're going to convert all of us, Vanessa, no till gardens. How do we start? And uh, I guess I can start by saying, I'm afraid you're going to tell us this is not going to be an easy process. So no-till vegetable gardening, um, there's a few different ways we can do it right. And um, I'm going to talk to you today about the one that I think is most reasonable for the scale that most of your listeners would be in, which is more like a very large, large plot. Um, Here in the city, I actually do my no-till, but it's a slightly different method. Um, The whole basis of no-till farming is we're essentially managing the soil rather than managing the plant. We spend so much time um, in gardening worrying about whatever's above the surface. We tend to forget how critically important everything that below the surface really is to the long-term health of the plant. Um, There was a guy who went through and did his uh, thesis work and everything on uh, roots. And, you know, you remember when you were kids and you saw all those guys who did all the work on the dinosaurs where they brushed away the bones and they went deeper and they drew all the pictures. He did the same thing with plant roots. And uh, one of my favorite examples in class is if you take, say, the average cell phone, which is about six inches long, if I held that up above my head as far as I can reach and uh, I put my arms straight out and I spun around in a circle, I've 
I'm essentially showing you the root footprint of a plant that's got a six inch taproot. So it's got a six inch taproot, the same size as my phone, and as far out as my arms can reach, and I spin around in a circle, that's how far all of these roots are growing under this under the soil all the way down to my toes. So we're looking at six, seven feet deep and about six feet wide. And you know what this is? This is a six inch carrot. That's how much the root system grows in a, in a typical loam soil. Um, and that's a lot. And we spend so much time managing that little floof on top and just really ignoring what's happening under the soil. And if you start to flip the script and start to look at managing for soil health, you can start to find how the soil will start to support all of these things and when we start to look at soil health and making healthy soil we're really looking at managing the ecosystem within the soil so we're trying to get um, a lot of nematodes a lot of bacteria a lot of fungi all of the good things that live in soil that help protect our soil and help protect our plants is what we're really trying to encourage to flourish in this and you'll see this also happening in human health too like we're really starting to understand the importance of our microbiota and all of the little things that we can't see in our body and how they all affect one another we're seeing some of the same things happening in plant soil as we start to recognize the significant importance of these tiny creatures and the types of work they do and we do actually um, harvest some of these if we start to look at like ipm approaches for dealing with um different types of gnats or stuff like that will for example we might go out and buy nematodes which are quite expensive or you could manage your soil and have a bunch of healthy native nematodes living in it already so you don't have to go buy them when we look at um, good soil stewardship and looking after your soil we're looking at reducing tilling as much as possible um, because tilling is going to be breaking up the soil, especially clay soil. People tend to really want to till more often because they want to break up that hard pan. Um, but realistically, when you look at soil formation, the less you disturb it, um, the more likely it is to build uh a healthier soil structure and this does take time and that's something that we'll need to talk about a little bit later on uh, we're going to be looking at reducing or eliminating the use of pesticides and herbicides um, we're going to look at lots and lots of mulch and cover crops and we're going to be looking at growing the right plant in the right place which becomes really fundamentally important to having really healthy plants so you can back off from a lot of these other things so when we look at a no-till garden a no-till garden always 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 has mulch as part of it so i get a lot of questions like what is mulch what do you do with mulch mulch is one of those things that's a little bit hard to explain because it could look like a lot of different things um, but we talk about it by function. So mulch is something that stays on the very top layer of the soil. It doesn't get mixed into the soil. It doesn't do any of these things because as soon as you start to mix this stuff into the soil, um, it becomes a soil amendment, not a mulch. So mulch stays on top. It always stays on top. And what it does on top is it acts like a little blanket or a layer and it stops water loss. It prevents annual weed growth. So weeds, like all of your soil has what we call a seed bank in it. Um, and I know I know your farmers know a lot about that. Like red root pigweed in one season will spit out about 120,000 weed seeds. Um, lambs quarters and portulaca, about half that each season. And all of these just get mixed into your soil and they're just waiting there, waiting their moment. So you can hear them snickering evilly in the background. 
just they're just waiting to grow they just need a little bit of sun a little bit of water and in our gardens we provide that for them we basically encourage them but if we put mulch on top the mulch is going to uh, block all of the light from going through and it's not going to allow the seed bank to flourish and that's really critical to backing away from having to weed all the time but it's going to lock the water in and that makes a big deal um you can decrease soil compaction, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but actually is. Mud splash is another thing that it significantly helps with. And mud, mud splash sounds really cosmetic, but realistically, it's not a cosmetic issue at all. Um, I mean, it's nice to be able to go out and pick clean vegetables, but uh, mud splash, all of these critters I'm talking about that live in the soil, all the bacteria, all the fungi, all these nematodes, they're really beneficial in the soil. But once you get them onto your plant above the surface, they can start to cause diseases because the soil will scratch the, the protective skin off the plant. And then these fungi and bacteria can move into your plants. So you really don't want them on your plants. And, and mulch will help that. It prevents wind and water erosion, which is really important with how our rain cycles are now happening on the prairies. We're getting a whole lot of water all at once. And we're seeing a lot more soil erosion because of it. So mulch help, helps to capture that water and keep it in place where it belongs and as these mulches decay if you're choosing a natural organic mulch they're going to break down over time and that's really really useful so as it's doing all of these things over time it's actually going to improve your soil and improve your soil and improve your soil so every year your soil will get better to the point that um, I've got a friend of mine she's a single parent she's got five kids um and she feeds her whole family on her garden. It's a 26,000 square foot garden, which is huge by my standards, probably not huge by farming standards, but realize that she manages this garden while working full time and still has enough produce left over to sell as uh, community boxes and stuff like that. And she doesn't, she doesn't have to water her garden at all ever because of the way the water system has changed for having mulch year after year because all of the snow gets captured, all of the rain gets captured and it's really been a transformative system um, for the amount of work that it is to get that much bounty off of a small space because it's you're not a slave to watering, you're not a slave to weeding, your stuff is starting to grow a little bit more naturally so that really does make a huge difference um, for the inputs and outputs that you're going to get out of a system like that. It's a really practical approach. Um, there's different mulches you could look at using for any mulch to be really effective um, for this type of gardening. Um, it needs to be at least four inches thick. Four to six is probably your sweet spot in there. If you go two inches, you're actually going to create more problems than you're solving. So you really have to look at the thickness because it's this thickness that's able to allow the capture of the water, the blocking of the sun, which is critical, and the uh, the breakdown over the season. So four to six is your, your goal here. You'd be looking at using well-rotted straw. So those bales you have in the back 40 that are falling apart, those are ideal for something like this because then you're not importing weed seeds or anything like that into it. Um, Arborist wood chips work extraordinarily well, especially for pathways or surfaces where you're going to be walking on a lot. Because, again, we're trying to protect our soil and avoid the, comp the compaction that goes with that. So your arborist wood chips, that's going to be get whatever you get out of a chipper, um, whether it's pine or whether it's a 
conifer deciduous, fresh, old, it really doesn't matter wood chips or wood chips. As long as when you pick up a handful of them, you're getting like 20 pieces. It's not going to be like 400 pieces. So you need it to be a certain chunkiness, um, like popcorn or slightly bigger than popcorn. But we don't want those chunks. So if you pick it up and you're only getting like one or three or five pieces, that's too big a pieces. And that just becomes mouse habitat. Nobody wants mouse habitat. Vanessa Young with the University of Saskatchewan Horticulture Department. Uh, she's going to come back and visit us again next episode and talk a little more about mulch and the process for getting that no-till garden put into place. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. I'm speaking with Lonnie Bulmer from Bison River Ranch. Let's first of all talk about uh, where exactly you are located. Uh, we're located south of Tisdale along the Barrier River. Our ranch is situated just on the north side of the river and stuff. So uh, three of our pastures are, are right alongside the river. Tell me about your operation and about how many head you run. Uh, we're mostly uh, cow-calf pairs operation. Uh, I think this year we're going to try to start uh, feeding out a few animals and stuff. Uh, this year we're running roughly about 200 animals on this, this property here right now. The original family farm is only uh, a mile and a half away and stuff for where I grew up and where my, my parents farm bison something that was part of your original family farm or something that you decided to get into? No, uh, my family got into bison in 1987 so I was pretty much raised around bison and stuff, grew up with them and did lots of different things with them and that kind of thing. What is it about bison, the bison that you like and made you want to continue on with that? Oh, there's many things I don't know where to even start. I just like the animal itself is just such a, a beautiful, majestic animal, like out in the pasture settings and, and being out there with them and stuff. It's just one of those things that millions of years ago when they roamed the prairies and stuff, they just looked so cool back then. And I, I just I just really liked them from then on. Uh, how would you compare it to other livestock farming? Is there any any similarities to cattle or that type of thing? Well, they are similar to cattle in some ways, but uh, as far as, as the rest of them goes, like they're they're easier to keep and stuff for like for weather conditions. Like these last few days of our weather we've had, we're not having calves yet because we'll start calving here soon in April, May, and we don't need all the calving shelters and all this kind of stuff for them. Feeding programs and stuff throughout the winter months, we can feed out in their pasture situations and stuff instead of bringing them into the yard. So they're a lot easier to keep that way. Um, handling and stuff is a little different story. You need very well-built facilities and stuff to handle them. But overall, I would say that they're a little easier to to look after in their natural settings. I was going to ask you about that because they are majestic, no doubt, but they are large animals and uh, maybe a little intimidating for someone like me who hasn't been around them what kind of precautions do you take when you're when you're around them? Well, you just you you learn to respect the animals and and you give them their space when they need their space. You try not to pressure them and and stuff like that and just let them do what they're going to do. 
on their own kind of thing. And uh, like in handling systems and stuff, we try to build everything at our ranches out of steel so that uh, we don't have any, any kind of accidents or anything like that so that they don't get tangled up in wire or whatever else. It just makes handling a lot simpler and then lots of visibility and stuff for them to, to know where they're going and where they're moving. When calving season does come, are the mamas protective of their calves? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, they, uh, when they got a calf at foot, they know they got a calf and, and they'll, they'll protect it as well as the herd as well. It's not just mama that's going to protect the, the baby. It's, it's the whole herd. So when you're out there, the herd circles around and, and makes sure that all the calves are gathered up and stuff. Bison River Ranch is very active on Facebook, and it's great. You get to have a unique perspective into into farming. And there was mention about having a sick animal. So how does how does the vet? Obviously, the vets know what they're doing, but you know that obviously there is some concern there, and making sure things are safe when the vet needs to come out and, and attend to them. Yes, like uh, we try to like if we have any any kind of issues like that, well. We'll try to do bring the animal in as safely as possible and get it into into a confined area where we can look at the situation, see what's going on, see what kind of actions that we can take and stuff. And then if we have to further the actions, then we'll either sedate or put them into a facility, uh, a head gate or a chute, to uh, to do our doctoring from there. But most of the time, we just let them be and, and do their thing out uh, out in the pasture because there's not a lot that we can really do for them. Usually when a bison is sick, that uh, it's usually unfortunately too late. What are the markets like for, for bison right now? Is it similar to other livestock where, you know, there's there's ups and downs with it? Yes, yeah, like the, the markets here since COVID and, and all the rest of it have been kind of our hit and miss. They're a little lower right now than than they have been, and stuff. But uh, well, we're still we're still all right. We're still doing what we need to do, and and that kind of thing. We're we all got our fingers crossed for higher markets, of course, just like everybody else in the business farming mm-hmm. business. So we'll uh, see what the future brings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where do you ship your animals? Um, I sell my calves to uh, local feeders uh, when I was doing it, and then. Uh, they carry on from there down to the U.S. We hear a lot about bison meat and uh, how it's a very lean and, and healthy meat. Do you find that that is something that attracts people to buying that product? Yes, like with the no fat and very lean and stuff, it's very good for everybody to consume in my books. Like, uh, I'm not saying anything bad about anything else. It's just I, I really quite enjoy the meat. It's a leaner meat and, and it's got all the nutrients that you need in it. You're also a member of the Sask Bison Board. This is something that you've just uh, kind of gotten into. What kind of work is the board doing these days? What are kind of the main concerns for the bison industry? Uh, We're just working towards making everything better right now, Uh, trying to get uh, more social media and and more word out about the animals. We're we're working towards lots of that stuff right at the moment. And like I said, just... uh, just got on the board, so we haven't even had our first board meeting yet. But and I'll know more about what's taking place here in the future and what's gonna gonna take place with what's what's happening in the world. So. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to change gears a little bit. I understand that your wife was was born in Germany and was visiting Canada, and that's how you met. Yes. 
I've also found it interesting that you've kind of gotten into another little sideline business with a rental cabin. I, I think the intention was to have that for visitors, but that didn't quite work out this year. But maybe just tell us about the cabin that you have located on your farm now. Well, we purchased a cabin that was up in the Tolvin Lake area with the intent to bring family from Germany to uh, come and stay with us. And then, of course, we all know what happened in the world with COVID mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, so that didn't quite work out. And then uh, we moved the cabin in March of last year. Got it set up in the summer months, and then we were kind of wondering what to do with it. So I uh, went into harvest and stuff, and then I had a harvest crew come, uh, good friends of mine, and they stayed in the cabin and helped me kind of get it set up and that kind of thing throughout the harvest. And... Uh, we kind of wondered what we should do with it, and then we decided to start renting it out, and that has absolutely taken off. We can't believe how it's how it's gone, and uh, the people that we've had have been absolutely awesome and, and seem to be enjoying their time here with the ranch because cabin's sitting right on the ranch. So when you wake up in the morning, you got uh, bison kind of all the way around you uh, with the pens and everything. So it's, it's just one of those things we kind of stumbled onto it, and can't really believe in how it's taken off. So the people that you've had uh, were just looking for a getaway? Did you have snowmobilers? Like, what was your clientele like? We had people of all walks. Like, I, I, I honestly, I can't believe it, uh, the, the spread that we got. Yes, we got lots of snowmobilers. Uh, we had people from the cities and stuff come with young children and just stay and stuff just just to get away and just a, a nice outing kind of thing. Uh, I've had uh, other experiences with uh, people coming that were doing uh, stuff with films and stuff like that for sound and and that kind of thing for nature sounds. And just recently, we've had some people from uh, from other cities that were. Same as, like, my wife. My wife's from Germany, and these people were from other countries as well, and they just wanted to experience the bison. So an unexpected turn uh, for your plans, but it's turned out to be a good one. Yes, yeah, it, it has. Like, and, and, the, and the people that we've gotten, like I say, is just unbelievable and, and super, super good people. Like, just everybody that we've had so far has been awesome. Uh, Lonnie, I'm sure the ranch keeps you busy 24-7. Of course, you have your cabin now. Uh, what are your plans for the coming year? What's what's on your agenda? Oh, our plans every year to expand and, and keep expanding with new things on the horizon and stuff and me going on to the board. Is, uh, we're going to keep expanding with the ranch and, and hopefully keep having more and more guests over the summer months. And uh, hopefully everything goes ahead in the future and... Uh, we got some plans coming up in the summer months for a, a bison field day. I've gotten everything kind of planned to the degree where I've got all my speakers and kind of the layout. We're doing the, the final details of it. Right now, when we're working it towards the 30-year anniversary with the Saskatchewan Bison Association and with the ministry, our egg ministry, to show that our bison association and us as bison producers are here and we're trying to, trying to make... Not necessarily a statement, but we're we're here, we're alive, and we want to push forward to the future, like get more animals and hit the the meat markets, and not be so much of a niche market anymore, and and be more readily available in stores. 
Lonnie and his wife Connie run Bison River Ranch in Northeast Saskatchewan. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of March 29, 2021. Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Agency this week said that two seed treatments do not pose an unacceptable risk to aquatic invertebrates. PMRA conducted the special review of clothianidum and thiamethoxum that protect tiny canola plants from flea beetles, which can dramatically reduce stand viability if not controlled early. Canola Growers Chair Mike Ammeter said it was great news for farmers as the products provide important protection to the crop in its earliest stages of development. And while there was no changes for use in canola, there will be lower application rates in corn and soybeans. PMRA also said there would be reduced rates of seed treatment for vegetable crops, potatoes and a few other crops. A total of 43 recommendations came from a rural internet and cell phone service task force. For the past six months, the Agricultural Producers Association of Saskatchewan has been talking to experts about an issue that has an impact on everyone in a rural community. The chair, Jeremy Welter, said the pandemic put a stronger focus on how far behind the entire country is in providing adequate internet and cell service to rural areas. Despite some setbacks caused by the pandemic, Canada's food and beverage sector could be even stronger this year. According to a new Farm Credit Canada report, most economic indicators for the food and beverage processing sector say it could fare better compared to other sectors of the Canadian economy. Grain and oilseed milling is expected to see the most significant increase in sales at 13.4% due to increased demand for edible oils, flour and other baking products domestically and abroad. Plant-based products are expected to capture a greater portion of food spending as part of a growing consumer trend. Farm Credit Canada says it wants to work with Indigenous communities and entrepreneurs and support growth in the agriculture and food sector. An online survey of Indigenous producers showed more than 70% plan to increase participation in the sector over five years. FCC's Sean Sunius said some of the biggest challenges cited were access to capital, equipment, labour and knowledge. Canadian Cattlemen's Association board re-elected Bob Lowe from Alberta as its president. Saskatchewan rancher Red Schellenberg will serve as vice president. Also at the CCA annual meeting, priorities for the coming year were set. Maintaining full business continuity through COVID-19, making changes to business risk management programs, ensuring beef is seen as a nutritious, sustainable protein choice, changing the conversation about cattle from an environmental perspective, and enhancing international trade market access will be a focus. And the shipping season began at the port of Thunder Bay. Two bulk vessels arrived at port to be loaded with grain, while grain loading operations at the port are expected to increase quickly. Two wintering vessels also departed Thunder Bay. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.